the, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his bird and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Jesus, we believe that you've broken the, the yoke of our burden. You've broken the rod of our oppressor. We proclaim freedom, Lord. We believe that uh, those who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Lord, reveal your light. Shine your light into our hearts. That the darkness, the places we're deceived, the places that we're confused and we don't understand, that your light would shine, bring clarity and revelation to us, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. We're going to be in John uh, chapter 5 today, so you can turn your Bible there. We're gonna, I'm going to go back to verse, oh, probably verse 17, um, or really pick up at verse 19 with our study. Um, and so part of what, I guess part of what we're going to study today is uh, something I learned, uh, I was taught uh, a long time ago when I was a young man. I might have still been a teenager. Uh, my dad will remember we went through the Experiencing God book. I don't know if any of you guys have walked through that. Um, one of the main verses that you, they had you memorize in that study, um, one of the main ideas that they were discussing was what we're going to talk about. Uh, Jesus is going to say, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And um, Jesus says, uh, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does the son also does and and at least I have to go back and read it to confirm this but what I understood from studying that was that uh, in the same way as followers of Jesus we can observe and perceive through the Holy Spirit what God is doing and we are to join him in his work and I think even this morning uh, Kara shared with me and then my dad had this uh, you know I I was you know, from the time I came in here, I felt like God was wanting to do a work. He was wanting to set people free. And I felt that there was an opposition, a hindrance, a, uh, something going on. And then Kara came and shared that. And my dad shared that. And it lines up with what Jessica shared. And I think what you're seeing is God's wanting to do something. And there are people who are perceiving that God's doing, uh, he wants to do this, this thing today. He's doing this thing. And we want to join him where he's working. And so... Um, when we invite people to come up to pray, there's no guilt trip. There's no expectation. Um, there's no burden from us. We don't want to put a, another religious, religious burden on someone that then you feel, go home and feel guilty about. But we do want to extend, continuously extend an invitation to be a part of what God's doing. Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, and we're to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we want to see... God's kingdom break into your life. We want to see that happen. And Jesus said, and I, I share this almost every time I preach, he said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And so when I stand up here, what I would, my prayer is that the kingdom of God would break into your life, the abundant of life of Jesus would be experienced in your life. And that's our hope for you. So we're going to be in John chapter 5, 
And um, Barb, before I forget, would you would you come up here? Sorry to put you on the spot, but uh, you have a prayer prayer concern. Yeah. I'm gonna turn that on. I'm gonna turn mine off in case it gets squeaky. That's not. Okay, yeah. Addie Solid reached out and asked that we pray for her. She did get, uh, she had a big biopsy Wednesday, and she's got a very rare and aggressive form of breast cancer. Uh, she's not resting well just due to the biopsy, and so she has asked that we as a church would pray for her. Okay. Heavenly Father, we just quiet ourselves before you and we lift up Addie to you, Lord. Um, a rare and aggressive form of cancer is not a very good uh, report, but Lord, you are the healer. You love Addie, Lord. We just give her to you. You are the one that has overcome, and we believe that by your mercy and your grace that she will be healed, that she will be healed in Jesus' name. And in the meantime, Lord, I ask for peace the peace that surpasses all understanding to fill her heart, her soul, her mind, and give her strength for her and for DJ. As they go through this battle, Lord, may they just feel your presence, your overwhelming presence as they go to doctors and decide what they do next, Lord. I am so thankful that we can come to you, that we can seek you, we can lift her up to you, Lord, and you hear our prayers, that you love us and you care for us. We just thank you for taking care of Addie and DJ. We ask that you give her doctors great wisdom and discernment, that you just protect them, protect their minds as they go through this process. And we thank you for what you're doing in their lives as, you, as they go through this. We thank you. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so John uh, chapter 5. Now, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and if you want to get caught up to speed, if, if you've been missing or you're a guest, those are available somewhere. You can look online and go on Facebook and I don't exactly know where they're at, but I think they exist out there on the, in the internet world. Um, and we had looked at the healing at the pool of Bethesda, where, uh, you know, these crippled, lame, sick people would gather around this pool. There was a superstition or a tradition that if the waters of the pool were stirred up, the first person who could get into the pool would be healed. Um, so it was like, kind of like a race, you know, it's like you're watching and the waters get stirred up and you race to the pool. Well, if you're a paralyzed or lame person, um, it's actually kind of a, a cruel joke, you know, like how are you going to get up and run to the pool? And there was a man who'd been sitting there believing in this, but unable to access the healing waters for 38 years. And Jesus walks right up to him and heals him. 
tells him to take his mat and go home. He'd been laying on a mat. Uh, the problem was that this was on the Sabbath. And so Jesus, the man got in trouble, and then uh, Jesus found himself in trouble with the Pharisees because he told the man to do this. Now, for some of this, this was hard to understand. Like, you know, why is this a big deal? What's going on here? Why are these people uh, making a big deal about it? But if you've uh, been involved with religion, you know that religious people sometimes are weird. Like, they have weird ideas and they do weird things, right? And sometimes they're, they're weird because of right reasons and truth, and sometimes they're weird because of uh, man's traditions. Mostly they're weird because of man's traditions, right? Um, but I mean, people, if you've been around people, people are just kind of, people are weird, you know? So it's like, we don't want to be too hard on religious people. But what we see is Jesus having an encounter with the Pharisees, and um, it, he gets himself in trouble, and they want him to answer for why he told the man to pick up his mat, right? Um, and he gives an answer, or he gives an explanation. You know, my kids do this sometimes. Like, you ask them why they did something, and then their explanation, like, they're in a little bit of trouble, and then their explanation gets them in more trouble. You know, like, when you find out what was really going on or what's, what's up behind the scenes, it's like, you know, why'd you do this thing? Well, because we were doing this. And the second thing is a lot more serious of an offense. And that's sort of the situation with Jesus here. Um, we'll start at... Uh, I'll start at verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 16. Sometimes they put it up there. But uh, if you have a Bible or a phone, you can find it. I'll read it out loud to you, and then we'll go back through it. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath... But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the, son, the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives him life, even so the son gives life to them to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. I'll stop there for now. So Jesus gives them an answer. They want to know, why, why did you break the Sabbath? You told the man to carry his mat, and you healed him. That's considered working on the Sabbath. Now, we know that Jesus was sinless. He didn't break any of God's laws. But he continually found himself breaking the additional rules and ideas that people added to what God had said. And... He wasn't afraid to do this. It seems like sometimes he really enjoyed doing this. But he carried on with his life, and he wasn't encumbered by the expectations, the unrighteous expectations of other people. Now that is freedom, brothers and sisters. And I wish we could all have that freedom, where we could carry on 
in righteousness with our lives, not being pushed and swayed and moved and, and, uh, and bullied and uh, guilt-tripped by the unrighteous expectations of other people. I hope that you experience that freedom, that you can carry on with your life unswayed by those things. But the truth is, we have, um, we have filters, we have mindsets, we have worldviews. And so the Jewish people, we're going to see later in verse 5, Jesus said to them, you uh, diligently scour the Scriptures, thinking that in them you have eternal life, but they point to me, and you refuse to come to me, and I would give you that life. So they were on the right track and missing the point entirely. That's a tragic place to be. These were people who knew the Scriptures inside and out, but they added to it their own explanations, their own traditions, their own rules, and we, what I shared at the beginning, those rules were burdensome to people. Those rules uh, were wearying to people. And Jesus was very concerned that we don't have to live under the yoke of that oppression. You know, these people uh, had misconceptions about almost everything. They misunderstood. And they based their life around their, their traditions and their misconceptions and their interpretations. Jesus tells them at one point, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for Sabbath. They had elevated, they had reversed the order and elevated things. They elevated the Sabbath, and so the Sabbath was created to give people rest, which God wants us to have, and He wants us to, to experience, and He wants us to exercise. It is a good thing to have a day of rest. It is a wise thing to have a day of rest. But they had added so many burdens to that rest that uh, it wasn't restful. It created problems. It created conflict. It created anxieties. It created worries. It created obstacles and hurdles and problems to accomplishing the very thing, that, the very reason that God had established it. We see religion doing this. We see religion aiming to fulfill the things that God wants, and hindering the fulfillment of the things that God desires for us. And so this is a common theme in the life of Jesus. And so they're, they're worried about the Sabbath, and then he says, my father is working, and I too am working. And it, John gives us this explanation. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's his, his explanation got him into more trouble. Um, and Jesus talks about religion in, in other places in scriptures, and he refers to uh, what he's doing. There was a time that they were questioning him about fasting. Why don't your disciples fast? And he gave this explanation, which to us might be lost because we don't, deal with wineskins necessarily, but he says, you know, you don't put new wine into old wineskins because it will burst. You don't sew new fabric onto old fabric because it will tear. And in Luke, he says, no one who's tasted old wine likes the new wine. What he's saying is that there are mindsets that we take on from our upbringing that hinder us from grasping what God is doing. And we prefer our old way of thinking. 
We prefer, perhaps it's our religious way of thinking. A lot of times we just kind of refer to it, uh, we talk about our lives, we refer to it from where we're from, okay? So if we grew up in the church, you have a mindset from growing up in the church. If you grew up on the streets, you have a mindset from the streets, right? My dad, he's a hillbilly. You grow up in the hills, there's a mindset that comes from the hills. If you're a farmer, there's a mindset that comes from growing up out in the fields, right? Uh, if, if uh, you know, you could have a mindset from the suburbs. You have a mindset from Wall Street. You have a mindset from the university. The places that we've spent time that have shaped us, we put on a mindset from those places. And Jesus is coming down from heaven, and he wants to, to take on a heavenly mindset. But to do that, we have to cast off the old. He says, actually, we have to be born again. We can't take our old way of thinking and pour the new thing that God is doing into it. Because it's going to tear it apart. And what, what's tragic is, he says, you pour the wine, new wine into old wineskins, they burst, and what happens to the new wine? It's lost. It's poured out. And so we see people trying to take what Jesus is doing, pour it into uh, an unworthy way of thinking, an unworthy worldview, an unworthy mindset, and it bursts, and it tears, and it's lost. And so I think Jesus is very concerned that that doesn't happen to us today. I bump up against this. You know, I live in Davies County. Um, I bump up against, uh, I'm not casting dispersions, but I can, you know, I've shared this before. You know, it's like I've worked with Amish people, people of a Mennonite background, and I'll bump up to something and I'll think, I'll do something, and they'll kind of, they're very polite, but they'll kind of look, look at me a little sideways or think if it's weird. I'm like, oh, I've, I've bumped up against a religious rule that I didn't know that I broke. You know, I, I've been around people that are, you know, in the charismatic movement or Pentecostal movement. They've grown up in the church. And, you know, I'll bump up against something and I'll do something different. And I'll like, you know, they're usually very polite. Sometimes not. It's not particular to any, any denomination. I went to a Baptist university. And, uh, you know, I was in the religious studies program. And I'd bump up against Baptist rules that I would break that I, like, wasn't on my radar and I was like, oh, I, I've, I've hit something religious here, you know? And I've done that in the world. Wherever you go, you, you'll find those little barriers that you bump up against. Not that my worldview is 100% correct, um, but I, I've, ex- I've noticed this. Have you noticed this when you encounter different people from different backgrounds? Okay? And so that's what Jesus is bumping up against. But I want to challenge us to examine our mindset so that we don't miss what God's doing in our life because of our ideas about how things should go, all right? We actually need a a new mind. Scripture talks about us being born again, being a new creation, having the mind of Christ. Uh, We need a heavenly mindset, not a mindset from the streets, not a mindset from the hills, not a mindset from the university, not a mindset from the corporate world, not a mindset even from the church. We need a mindset from heaven. And we can get that through the Bible. But we can study the Bible and not get what God's doing. Are you with me on that? Do you understand that? Have you experienced that? Okay, so Jesus is bumping up against this. And there was something else that stood out to me. Jesus said, God is always at work. This is his explanation. Why are you working on the Sabbath? God's at work on the Sabbath. He's doing the things that he does. He's healing. He's saving. He's rescuing. He's helping. He's loving. He's caring for. He's being generous too. 
God is at work. Now, I want to uh, clarify here, because I was thinking about my own life, uh, and I feel like I'm always busy, you know? I'm always busy. I feel like I'm always at work. And, and actually, you know, it's kind of funny in my household, you know, that's a criticism, a fair criticism that I get from my family, that I'm too busy or I'm always at work, you know? Uh, but what's, I was thinking what's comical is sometimes in the same day, I'm too busy and I work too much and I'm resting too much and I'm being, you know, I'm not working hard enough. Like I, sometimes I get that criticism in the same day. Um, when the scripture says, Jesus says, God is always at work, I want you to understand, God's not always at work because he has this huge backlog of things that he needs to get done and he hasn't been able to get to. Okay? God is always at work. It's not because he has a lack of resources to finish the tasks. It's not because he's waiting for money to come in so he can get new materials and finish the job, or he's waiting for money to come in so he can hire new people. God is always at work. It's not because he lacks resources. Um, God is always at work. It's not because he lacks the energy to get things done that he wants to get done. He doesn't lack the energy to accomplish it. He doesn't lack the power to accomplish it. Uh, God is always at work, but it's not because of factors outside of his control. You know, if these people would just get their part of the job done, he could carry on with his work. And if this was, would get accomplished, and if these people would get their act together, that's not why God's always at work. Sometimes it feels like that's why I'm always at work. I'm at the mercy of other people. Uh, God is not uh, always at work because he's too exhausted to finish. He's not always at work because he's beset by unforeseen circumstances. Um, he's not always at work because it's so complicated and he's confused about what to do next. He's not always at work because he's overcommitted himself and he's got himself in a bind. God is not always at work for those reasons. God is good. He is perfect. He's righteous. He's always at work because it's in his nature to be good and to do good. And he's not wore out. He's not exhausted. And he doesn't require rest. He created the Sabbath for our behalf. On our behalf. And so I think that's important to clarify because sometimes we can maybe think of God in those terms like uh, he's just hindered by, you know, all these circumstances. And poor God, he just he's so busy and there's so much to do and he can't get it done. All right. But Jesus says he calls God his father. And there's a lot going on here theologically. Jesus is the Jews recognize this. He's making himself equal with God. Uh, a father begets a son. They're of the same nature. They have the same DNA. And so Jesus is making a claim here, and they're recognizing it, and they're considering it blasphemous. And I have sympathy with them here, because if somebody walked in the door and claimed to be equal with God, I would be very skeptical. And if they continued to proclaim it, and people were following them, and they're building a movement, I would be very skeptical. I may even aggressively, uh, verbally aggressively come against them. I may try to uh, counter, have counter arguments. I may go to people to persuade them not to listen to them. I'm a, I can be sympathetic with them on this account because this is a serious claim. I think where, I, where they are guilty is that they're not considering the evidence before them when they're, when they're examining this claim. They have no opening of belief, 
even though they have the scriptures, which tell them the things that Jesus will do, they're missing the point entirely. But Jesus makes these claims and he gets himself into more trouble. He's not concerned that they're trying to kill him. In fact, he came for that reason to die on the cross. Again, it wasn't something that caught God off guard, caught him by surprise, and he had to audible. And so he came up with a resurrection to save Jesus from this mess he got in. This was the plan all along. And so Jesus was unconcerned with escalating the situation. But Jesus did heal the man. And they said they looked up for ways to kill him all the more because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this portion of Scripture, I think, uh, does away with a lot of people's claims about who they believe Jesus is. And I've shared this before. I've talked to you about the Lord, liar, lunatic argument. Have you guys heard me talk about that before? It's an apologetic argument uh, regarding Jesus. Okay? Here he is. He's doing amazing things. He's teaching amazing things. You may say he's a great teacher. You may say he's a prophet. He's a man with spiritual insights. He has some mystical understanding of how the world works. You know, he's a good man, and bad things happen to him. But you might say that even though I believe those things, I don't believe he's God. With the claims that Jesus is making here, he either is speaking the truth, and he knows it's the truth, and he's making a claim that's righteous, or he's, if that's not the case, he's either saying things that he believes to be true, but are wrong, and he's a lunatic, or he's saying things that are wrong, that he knows are wrong, and he's among the worst of liars that ever lived, the greatest deceivers that ever lived. You cannot make the claim that Jesus was a good man and a good teacher, but he wasn't God, he wasn't the Savior, he wasn't who he said he was. This portion of Scripture does away with that argument, and you have to reckon with that. You here today have to reckon with that. He is who he says he is. He is the Lord. Or he is none of those things and he's a lunatic, a crazy man. Or he's a liar and among the most evil people that ever lived. You can't say he was a good teacher. Millions of people claim he was a good teacher. He was a good man. Millions of people might claim that he had spiritual insight. He was a prophet or something along those lines. But the Jews decided that he was a liar of the worst kind, a blasphemer deserving of death. They knew they couldn't just say, well, he's a good teacher. They couldn't say, uh, at some point his family maybe thought he was a lunatic until they came around to faith. We know that from James. They came to bring him home. They were worried about him. You have to decide from this passage, is he Lord? Is he a lunatic? Or is he a liar? Jesus told them, he said, the son, verse 19, can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the son does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he'll show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives him life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
There's no separation. There's a lot of depth here theologically. There's claims about who Christ is. He's saying he's equal with the Father. He's from the Father. And everything that he does is what he sees the Father doing. And I don't understand this. In my mind, sometimes I picture it like a video game, like Jesus is walking through the world and he sees like a, you know, I don't know if there's like a little box over somebody's head or a little uh, Holy Spirit smoke stewing over them or like a little bit of a radiance. And he goes, okay, God's working over here, so I'm going to go to this person. And then, you know, he joins a conversation and he sees what's God do, what God's doing. There's a way that he perceives this that I don't understand. But I do believe that when we walk in the Spirit, there is the ability to see where God's at work. You can go through your day and there are opportunities where God is working in people's lives. And you'll come up to them and you'll find that God is at work and you just willingly participate as the Spirit leads. I believe that is a reality that you can walk in, that you can walk out. It requires wisdom. It requires knowledge of the Scriptures. It requires an openness to the working of God. But I, I, we see Jesus doing these things and I see, I believe that we can experience that as we walk in faith. If, you're, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, have you ever encountered someone and it's become obvious to you that God's working in this situation and he's sent you here to work in that? Does anyone have a testimony of that? I know lots of you have experienced that. That is a reality, a spiritual reality that you can walk in. But Jesus is making claims of deity. And the Jews completely understand what he's saying. They just reject. We're going to see later in this verse, he gives, there's testimony and witnesses that he calls on. He calls on John the Baptist. He calls on his miracles. He calls on the testimony of his father. He calls on the testimony of the history of Moses and scriptures. And so there are testimonies that back up Jesus' claims. But we have to answer that question. Who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? And a good teacher, a good man, while partially true, is not the only answer. You can't add the word just. You can say he was a good teacher, but he was also the Messiah. That's acceptable. Just a good teacher is unacceptable when you look at the claims that Scripture has made. Jesus goes on to talk about, he says, there's going to be things even more uh, that God has shown, will show me that will, you will be amazed at. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who've done what is good will rise to live, and those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. There's so many claims in here. Now you may read that and you might hear, you know, you might just take in the totality. And, and if you break that down, there's so many claims that Jesus is making. But I want to point out something to you. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it down in this section uh, for the sake of brevity, we could spend, in this portion, we could spend, I think, many weeks uh, studying this scripture. But I want to say that 
Jesus is God. Jesus claiming deity. John, in the earlier chapter of John, he tells it that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's developing a theology of the Trinity. Jesus was with the Father, but there's a distinction. All things were created through him. Paul tells us in uh, Philippians that Jesus took on when he, he existed, but then he came in the flesh. He was the Son of God, but he came as the Son of Man, which is important. We're going to see in this passage for him to be a righteous judge. He lived a life as a human, but he was fully God and fully man. But he pre-existed with the Father from the beginning of creation. Uh, Paul said in Philippians that he took on the nature of a servant, and he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. He subordinated himself to the Father. This is complicated, uh, somewhat complicated theology, but it, it's, it's uh, simple if you understand it like a child, I guess, you know. But I want to point out what he makes. He makes claims about the resurrection then at the end of this. And I want to I say to you, if you have questions about the end of life, you have questions about the resurrection, I didn't come to these beliefs by saying, well, I believe these things about the resurrection, and Jesus confirms what I believe, so I believe in Jesus. I examine, this is how I accept Scripture, the things that I, that I believe and that Scripture teaches. I have encountered Jesus. I examine the claims of Jesus. I look at the effects of believing in Jesus and my own personal experience as well, my testimony of my encounter with Jesus. And then I look at what Jesus says and I accept his claims because who, what he claims about himself, I've experienced to be true. And so Jesus makes claims about the resurrection. And the first claim is that Jesus raises all the dead. All the dead are raised by the power of his voice. That's his second claim. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it explains it more, that he will return with a trumpet call, and by the cry of his command, the dead will be raised and stand before him for judgment. His voice has power. We know that. God speaks, creation exists. By the cry of his command, he calls people forth. We see Lazarus. He's gonna, we're going to experience that uh, Later on in the, in the Gospels, he calls Lazarus' name, and Lazarus comes back from the dead. By the cry of his command, this is accomplished. Jesus said, the hour has come. Meaning, when he walks on this earth, something significant historically has changed. We enter a new historic period, a new period spiritually in the, in the earth. It hasn't reached its fulfillment but the hour has come. We see Lazarus raised from the dead. We see Jesus raising people from the dead. We see his own resurrection. We see that the power of the Son originates in the Father himself. The, the Father gives the Son this power. And we see that the Son of God uh, was also the Son of Man. In order to be qualified as our judge. We get an idea of this in Revelation 5, which I've marked for you. Jesus lived as a human. He experienced every temptation. He experienced every, uh, every experience that is known to humanity. The human experience that we talk about if you study literature and philosophy. You talk about the human experience. Jesus went through that, and yet he was sinless. He's qualified 
to stand as our judge. In Revelation, we get an insight into heaven. And it says, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one on heaven, in heaven and on earth or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures, the lamb. Um, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and were holding golden bowls. Um, And they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, was also the Lamb of God. The Son of God was the Son of Man who was slain. He's worthy to judge. He's worthy to open the scrolls because he was fully God and fully man. And uh, let me find my little paper here. The other claim at the end of this passage, it says that, And this was a little bit difficult for me at first. He says, let me find my page. I'm going to wrap up here. He says, uh, those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. We will be judged according to our deeds. Now, I preach a gospel of grace. I believe Ephesians chapter 2, it says, by faith you are saved, by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of yourself, not of your works, so that anyone would boast. We are saved by grace, we're saved by faith, we are not saved by our works. But if I read on in John, I understand this. We are saved, and then we perform works of good or evil. John 15 says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We only do good by abiding in Jesus. But our fruit will reveal whether we abide in Jesus or not. Our good works are shown. They flow from abiding in Jesus, from our life in Jesus. Jesus makes these claims about the resurrection. He makes these claims about who he is, about his deity. And he demands, uh, there's a a book written, there's uh, evidence that demands a verdict. He demands a verdict. He demands us to investigate these claims and to make a decision about who he is. But I ask you to look at the person of Jesus. Look at the work he's done in the lives of uh, believers. Listen to the testimonies. Look at scripture. He wants to work in your life. But he, we have to begin by having that mindset, you know, our, our filter, the, the glasses through which we see the world that needs to be broken. And we need to receive it with new wineskins, with new lives. I'm going to stop there. There's much to be said, and I'm sorry if I've gone long. Uh, But where I begin in Matthew 11, Jesus was giving a similar discourse. He was telling them, he was telling them, uh, he said, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to those 
whom the Son chose to reveal him. He's making a similar claim. I see what the Father's doing. I reveal the Father. The Father reveals me. And he concludes with this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. That's the invitation. Not to come to a religion. Not to come to a set of rules. Not even to come to, set, to a set of beliefs. But to come to a person. The Son of God and the Son of Man. The Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb that was slain. The invitation is to come to Jesus. I'm going to pray for you, God. Thank you for these people. Uh, this is uh, a scripture which the deeper we get at it, it, it seems to become, uh, it's, it's deep and it's difficult and it's weighty. And I ask you to move uh, in the lives of the people here today that they would experience the unburdening, the unburdening, the, the lightening, the lifting of the weight the lifting of the yoke, the breaking of the rod, and they would experience the abundant life that you came to give. And so I make these claims about you today, and I hope um, that your spirit will come alongside what I've said. I don't want to say it in my own strength. Uh, I don't feel like I'm that influential or that effective, and I don't want that responsibility, but I ask you to reveal yourself and to move and to work in these people's lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name.